Hello again, everyone. We are up to episode 41 of the Enterprise Linux Security Podcast. How are you doing, Zhao? I'm fine, Jay. It's always a pleasure to be here with you for another great episode of the podcast. Um, this one is going to be fun. And <laughs> I've seen this in the comments. Um, we're going to introduce the Enterprise Linux Security Bingo. So every time you hear CVE, vulnerability, patch, or best practice, and this one is going to be tricky because we intentionally try to avoid it. Yeah, it's okay to take a sip. Yep. Um, drink responsibly and also <laughs> listen responsibly. <laughs> you might make it halfway through the episode. Oh, gosh, I'd wonder if anyone would make it through 10% of the episode because we usually <laughs> mention CVE within the first like one minute or half a minute. Um, I guess this is the exception other than, yeah. and it's not counting in the intro, by the way. Yeah. Like, so we, we have to get started, which we haven't yeah. done yet. So don't yeah. do anything yet. You might actually survive a few minutes on this one. So let's get into it. Um, today, we're going to be looking at an interview that was published on tripwire.com. It was an interview with Amon Sud, the head of cybersecurity at the company called Jimdo. They do website building for small businesses. That's not relevant for the, the actual story. The interview was conducted by Philip Ingram, who has a CISO uh, stories section on, on Tripwire. And there are some interesting tidbits. Um, most of the, the answers that we'll be covering are things that directly tie into stuff that we already covered previously in the podcast. But um, yeah, um, it goes to show that uh, even if some people might not agree with everything, we're not that off the mark when we're talking about these issues. And these are real things that uh, real companies are struggling with. I feel like anybody that's been doing anything IT or security related um, for a, a couple of months will start to, you know, see some things that we're talking about, some of the difficulties, because a lot of the things in this article, which we will have linked down below, is just like bringing back memories. Because, I mean, the things that this individual Aman is talking about, um, I, I'm like, yep, 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 I've been there, I've been there, yeah. that's hard, that is actually legit hard, that's a legit problem. Um, I haven't seen anything that I disagree with quite yet, I think he, he's pretty spot on, so I feel like this is just coming around full circle for us. Yeah, uh, most of the answers, obviously it comes from his position, are from a CISO standpoint. Uh, we will probably taking, be taking the subject matter a bit more relatable to sysadmins and cybersecurity practitioners in general, not just the CISO level, but this will be relevant for all of those target audiences. So taking this from the top, the, the interview starts off light. So he's asked about what essential skills he considers that someone on his position should have and someone that's trying to get into the, the CISO position should have. And he comes up with, with soft skills, basically. You need to get the right message across. So you need to be good at uh, persuasive influence, communication, and storytelling. Yeah. I've seen this come up time and time again on the Twitter discussions. And when people are asking about advice on how to get into cybersecurity and all of that, then usually all of these get pointed out as being essential. And right. most often, they'll, they'll be singled out before any of the technical skills before learning how to code, before learning how to do data analysis, before doing any type of actually technical things, you should be able to write a compelling story. You should be able to make a compelling case around a given incident, a given threat, uh, anything like that. Because the, the main issue here is that at the CISO level, you'll be explaining to your C-level partners and to the CEO 
why something is affecting the business. Not so much at the technical level. Nobody there is going to care if it's a buffer overflow or if it's anything else. They'll just need to understand what the business impact of that particular threat will be, whether it's going to be disruption of production or the customers won't be able to make purchases or you won't be able to deliver on time or the systems will be unavailable. All of those are business-related aspects, not so much that the threat actor is exploiting part 3389 and getting to a remote desktop and infecting the machines with ransomware. That's very fine and good. That's a good conversation for you to have with your IT team when discussing the actual problem, but not so much for a C-level meeting. Yeah, I feel like a good security report should be exciting and disturbing at the same time. And that's how you know that it's good because um, you know, it's going to have to have all the relevant information. Also, it needs to have obviously what you know what occurred and and, and things like that. And yeah, so I'm in complete agreement about that for sure. And um, yeah, documentation we talk about that, but you know, like you said, storytelling we we have to know. And when it comes to the upper level managers, usually what they want to know in general are three things: what happened, when is it going to be back up and running. And how do we prevent this from happening again? Those are usually the three most common things that upper level managers will ask for. And you're right. They don't, I mean, you could tell them that there's a buffer overflow, but you're probably going to get a, a, a strange look. And if you tell them like, there's a problem with my SQL, they'll probably say, use somebody else's SQL. <laughs> you're still on a row with those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, but... But getting to, to, to the point of this, um, mm -hmm. you also need good presentation skills. And this is something that he doesn't mention. But being able to stand before a non-technical crowd and explaining the problem is also going to be useful if you're in that position. Um, because most often, you're not going to be introducing just the reports. You have to do a presentation of what the, the impact is and explain that during the actual meeting. Um, so yeah. Getting that uh, that presentation skill, being able to talk in public, that's also going to be important. Um, if you're trying to break into cybersecurity, the, the actual technical skills that you need beyond this, and this isn't mentioned in the interview, are the relevant technical skills that you may need here. For example, good data analysis. You'll be dealing with lots of numbers coming out from logs that you're going to, to grab and count occurrences from. You're going to be looking at data that comes from geolocation from systems that are breached and all of that. So data analysis, being able to use Excel or something equivalent from the open office or whatever you're using, the, being able to use something like Excel to process the data, being good at that, at that and being able to do that those queries quickly and efficiently, that's also pretty good skill if you're going to break into cybersecurity. Um, Having system knowledge is always going to be great. So yeah, understanding how operating systems work and all of that. And then knowing a bit of programming. Programming is not necessarily a hard requirement for cybersecurity. If you have it, great. But most often, the threat analysis and the, the security testing won't require it immediately. So it's something that you can pick, along, pick up along the, the time that you're doing the job. Um, knowing assembly never hurts, but probably nobody's going to expect you to know assembly the first day on the job. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't hurt, but what about your mental health state if you have to <laughs> learn that? Actually, I'm, I'm, of course, joking. That's a lot of fun, and, you know, I, I believe that. It, and programming is great, but it, it is one of those things where I feel like 
um, security people touch pretty much everything. Like I can't think of anything they don't have to know a little bit of. They don't have to be an expert, like you were saying, but um, in any particular thing, but having, you know, knowledge across the board, at least what a variable is and a global variable versus, you know, local variable and um, how something can get out of bounds is very um, important to know. You may not understand how to write a complete application from scratch and that's totally fine, but you can still pick up on those things to your point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, moving on, he's then, um, a man who's then asked about um, if he would start to, to build a new security program at a new place, what uh, advice would he give as the, the first step or something like that? Um, what should organizations focus on? And his answer is pretty interesting. It's, it touches on something we mentioned before. He, he mentions that you should be able to, to get let me see if I get right. Okay, if you, you should be able to have accurate information and management of enterprise assets. What this means is that you should be able to quickly understand everything that's in your organization. You should be able to know all the systems that are connected, all the assets that are connected. And again, this falls into what we mentioned in previous episodes. You can't protect what you don't know it's there. So if somebody just deployed something on next to their workstation and plugged it to the network, you're not aware of it. You don't know that it's there. You're not going to be able to protect that device from new threats. Um, so you need to have visibility into your environment. This yep. is pretty important at every level. He mentions this as being important at the CISO level. It's just as important or even more at the technical, like the actual technical level where you're dealing with the actual systems, you need to know all the systems that are around. Right, and, and I feel like there's some questions that you can get asked that you need to have an answer to and is extremely awkward if you don't. So if someone in the management chain is asking you, um, wait, you didn't know about this device being connected? How did you not know that somebody connected a device to the network when you are managing you know, the network? That is absolutely a, a question you don't want to have posed to you if you, know, you actually don't understand what's being connected. So yeah, you really do have to understand everything that's on your network. Otherwise, um, that's a big problem. And he doesn't go into this, but personally, I think you should be starting to look at other things also. And I know this sounds awful cool saying these are assets. It's not my intention, but it's something important that you should be focusing on. Not just on the systems that are in your network, but the human factor as well. You should be able to understand the people who are working with your systems, your users, um, and be able to understand if they are properly trained, if they are lacking in some security knowledge that they should know and they don't. Because this is how people fall into stuff like phishing and all of that. Um, you might have the best security in place in all of your systems, and then it, all it takes is for one user to do something completely wrong and everything falls down. Um, we've seen how that affects businesses. We've seen how companies have been breached through, through strategies like that. So going beyond the systems and knowing the, the knowledge level of your users, that's also pretty interesting and pretty useful for a CISO and for the company overall. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's it's not always, I mean, sometimes there are, you know, people that mean ill will, but, but oftentimes it's also people that, that, you know, don't mean harm. They just hit the delete key, but they had the wrong window in focus when they, in focus when they pressed it. They didn't mean to delete everything in your file share, but they just did. And um, then all of a sudden you have uh, emergency backup testing to do. But 
you know, it, but yeah, the human factor, I mean, we have training, like you said, people need to be trained, you know, don't put that flash drive in your computer that you found in the parking lot. That's probably not a good idea. Um, don't let that individual into the building that, um, you know, promises they're, they're really good friends with the CTO or something like that. Um, you know, there's, there's all these things we talk about. And a lot of times I, I, you know, it's a high percentage. It's, it's just people making the wrong decision that really ultimately is a lesson that everyone has to pay for. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I think that the, the human factor here should be considered as well. When you're talking about your asset management, they're not mm -hmm. obviously assets, but they are also a very important factor to consider when you're looking at the, the overall security positioning. Um, and again, I, I bring it up in this part of the, the interview because it ties into visibility into all of your, your devices, all of your systems, and in this case, all of your users as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Um, again, he doesn't mention this in the interview. This is my take on it. Um, Agreed, yeah. Additionally, he he's asked about how should CISO should uh, communicate return on investments and uh, how should they approach that type of communication when they're talking to the C-level people? How do they get by in, into new investments in security? And... Um, he frames this into the, the business value of each of those investments. Like I said before, you should be able to frame your needs and your issues and around security towards the business-related need and the business-related issue, not so much framing it in terms of IT, because that's all very fine and good for you and if, for your team if you're very knowledgeable around IT. But framing those needs in, that, in terms that the business is, how it impacts the business, will get you better results in this type of situation. Right. And he also he also goes on in trying to avoid the, the scare tactics. Don't just go straight out and saying that the sky is falling every time that something breaks or there's a security issue or all of that. Because after a while that gets tiresome and you won't get any respect at a meeting that for the 20th time you're saying, okay, if we don't do this, then everything falls down. Yeah, like the other 19 times that it didn't. So, yeah. Right. And, and that's that's a good point because people get very numb. I mean, I think we experience this fatigue at all levels of computing from, you know, the new user that is clicking yes, 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 except through an installation wizard mm -hmm. without actually looking at the checkboxes of all the other things that are being installed or... Um, just clicking on something in their email because they're impatient and, you know, they're just, you know, there's no excuse for any of that. I'm not saying that, but that fatigue is at every level. And then when you start talking about security, um, especially if you're passionate about it, it might be what you want to talk about because you're really into that. And but what people are hearing is vulnerability, exposure, all these words that are scary words. And then eventually, if you're in a meeting, yeah, there's this really big vulnerability that's taking over companies. And it's like, yeah, you, you just told us like the last five days about things that are in the news and we're, nobody's yeah. taking you seriously at that point. It's a really hard balance to strike because like you're saying, it, it you know, if the sky is falling all the time, then, um, but it, it never fell. Then eventually when it does, it's like, oh, um, nobody took me seriously until it was yeah. too late. And all the other times it might not have happened because you did your job properly and you fixed the issue before it became a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but 
remember the, the situation that uh, a man is describing in the interview is when he's being asked how it would be communicated at the C-level meeting, for example. When you're asking for budget, when you're asking for buying into the investment that you want to do in uh, training all your new staff, for example, um, you're not going to get the resources or you're not going to get the resources as quickly or something like that. If people are tired of hearing about it, they'll just push it to the next meeting, they'll just push it to the next quarter, to the next year, something like that. Because after a while, they get numb to the, to the need, to the immediacy of the need. It's not that immediate. It doesn't need to happen now. And we don't want people to be in that mind state. Um, right. So that's why this, this fatigue here, it's important that you try to avoid it. And this falls into those soft skills of the start, being persuasive, being able to tell a compelling story and all of that, rather than always falling into the fear, the fear, uncertainty and doubt issues. You don't want to rely just on that to get your message across. And another thing I think that um, is really important to understand here is I want to make sure I'm, I'm not sending the message that you should never brag about what you do. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Um, because I feel like there's a time and a place. Now, there is one place where I feel like you could brag like crazy, and you should. Because if there's a security incident, you know, that's going to be a really hard situation, obviously. But if you think about your day-to-day, -day, uh, for example, let's just say there's a vulnerability in the news. And it's a really big one, remote exposure, all the things that we don't want to hear. And then you patch it. You, you know, you come in over the weekend or whatever, you get, get a maintenance window immediately because, you know, it's important. You, you get in there, you install the firmware update or the, you know, OS patch or whatever's required. And you confirm that the vulnerability is, uh, is patched. Um, what you should not do is say, yep, that was great. And then move on. Uh, write that down. Write down the vulnerability, the CVE, how many companies out there were impacted by this and you know when you first learned about it and um when you pass it don't send this to anyone this is your notes for you you personally i'm not telling you to you know the water cooler uh in the office you know i patched this vulnerability um i don't know if anyone really wants to hear that but at the end of the year when you do when you have your performance review i think it's a really great idea to tell your manager you know these are the things that i worked on over the years i patched this it it, it um bit a bunch of companies, this bit a bunch of companies, and I did all these things here. So you're really letting people know at that point. And that's a great way to do it too, because what you don't want to do is have nothing to say, especially in security. If you have that incident, then someone who doesn't know any better might think that you were the problem because you didn't solve it. Uh, absolutely make sure you keep track of your successes. But at the same time, if you keep telling everybody around the company, at this, you know, you have to have a balance, is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and that ties with, into one of the problems with security. Um, if you do your job properly in security, you never have an issue. So you're basically selling people on the idea that all of your work is in the absence of something. So you're avoiding the, the, the breach, you're avoiding the the bad actors getting into your systems, you're avoiding that. But there's nothing tangible to show for that. It's just the absence of a breach. There's just the absence of an attack. So you're selling your work as being something that creates nothing in effect. And right. that's uh, that's often tricky to, to get across. So I yeah. did my job perfectly fine and everything is as it should be. Yeah, great. And what are you doing here? So Yeah, exactly. Like, why are we paying you uh, when 
like you have nothing to say and there's like nothing around your neck of the woods yeah. that's noteworthy. But what they don't understand is the work that you do behind the scenes to make sure that those things don't occur. And that's def definitely something you don't want to lose sight of. Cause I feel like in a lot of ways, security, and I'm not trying to scare people away from security. What I'm trying to do is help people enjoy their job if they're in the security field. Um, and, and key to that is, is making sure it's known that you have value but also being fair, don't be overconfident. Um, don't say, yeah, I'm going to make sure that we never have a vulnerability or breach or anything like, don't say that because now you're setting yourself up for the expectation that there's going to be no vulnerabilities and, or, or no, no um, attacks. And like we've said before, you could be the best security person on the planet and still have something happen. It, it, and bad things do happen to good people. But at the same time, you just have to make sure that you're sending the right message, keeping track of your individual successes and the things that you've worked on. And at that point, I think if, you know, we do have a breach and someone does think, well, you should have fixed that. I mean, that's what a lot of non-technical people would think, but then your counter is, well, actually uh, the percentage of, P of companies, they do have problems. And here's all the things that I um, helped prevent over the course of the year. And, and I think management especially likes it when you have that little bonus my fix also made things run a little faster. So, you know, 10% faster production. Um, just, just try to pay attention to your victories because I feel like we're so busy. We move on to the next thing so quickly. We don't take the, a minute to document, note what we've done and uh, make sure that's um, on record. Another good point on why good communication is a very interesting soft skill yep. to have. It really is. Uh, Okay, and the next question is about how cyber attacks are changing at the moment. This is something that we've dealt with basically every single week. This is when Aman mentions that cyber, criminal, cyber criminals have become highly artistic, inventive, and opportunistic. Yeah, we've covered all of those. Mm -hmm. the, the new ways that they are doing the attacks, the creative ways that they are trying to get into code bases, for example, when we're talking about supply chain attacks, the ways that new systems are being compromised all the time. There is this innovation on the, the cyber criminal side. There is this evolution of the best practices, evolution of the way they do things, evolution of their whole ecosystem basically, because it's not just so much one attacker or one group targeting one organization. You now have the, you now have the, the groups that do the initial attack, the initial entry point, who will then sell the access to a secondary threat actor who does the, the code creation that will then sell it to another attacker who then gets it into your systems. And then there's another team that deals with asking for the ransom and dealing with the payment and all of that. There's this whole economic model, this whole business model around the, the, the attacks currently that didn't exist like 10 years ago. And right. this makes it completely different. So you're not just dealing with one entity that you can then, okay, go to law enforcement, they do their due diligence, they find these guys, but they might just find the, the weakest link in that chain. And so you'll never completely get rid of the threat to the industry as a whole. Just try to punch as many holes you can on the other side, but there are many more. If this right. was guacamole, it's like the moles just keep on popping new holes all, all around the machine. Um, yeah, um, it's different than it was 10 years ago. That's why the same practices don't work. The, the same way that you dealt with security 10 years ago doesn't work now. You need much more training, you need much more attention, you need much more speed in deploying your patches, you need much more attention to 
the traffic that's going on in your network, all of that. Um, you didn't need to have this attention to detail 10 years ago. It was much easier to deal with security. You know what I wish, uh, well, kind of, because I, I, I mean, I, my ultimate wish is we wouldn't have, as fun as this podcast is, a reason to do a podcast because nobody would be having any problems. But, you know, these problems exist, so we're going to cover it. But what? Uh, but it, in within that, what I wish is that, you know, I had realized when, you know, let's just say 20 years ago, the worst malware incident that I would deal with 20 years ago, I wish that was the um, peak, you know, because... Compared to that, like if we went back to that, I feel like things would be a lot easier because back then you needed backups because a lot of malware threat actors were just trying to make you have a bad day. They're just trying to make your files unreadable. This is before crypto. There was no ransom. They just want to destroy your computer. They just want to make it not boot. They think that's humorous or something. Um, and that is bad. Yeah. But now it's so much worse than that. And to your point, it just they get more and more clever. And that's not going to stop. They're, they're, I think what's clear is that there's no peak that they can reach. They're just going to keep beating that peak and, and getting above it. Yeah, and we've seen that with the with the sudden drop in the, the crypto market. We've seen them change their tactics to adapt to that. So rather than just encrypting the files, they are now exfilling the files so that they're stealing your data. And if you don't pay, then maybe your shady competitor will pay to know your business secrets. Well, yeah. Maybe your C-level meetings will be divulged online. Do you want that? That's probably more damaging than having your data unavailable. Um, right. So there's this evolution. It's an arms race. We've seen this before in other situations, but this is another arms race. As the conditions on the, on the blue team change, so does the conditions on the red team change. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a bit more than what, uh, what a man goes into in his answer, but the evolution is not just so much the creativity and all of that, and that is true. They are evolving and they're being extremely clever with the way they do their attacks, looking for breaches that we, nobody else had considered before. But it's just that the whole ecosystem on the, the threat actor side it changed completely in the past few years. Um, new groups, they are more specialized. They are dealing with just specific parts of, of an attack. They are being more focused on what they are doing. And that makes the threat larger. That makes it more important to deal quickly with uh, with new problems. Absolutely, and um, yeah, so many good points. And because um, I really want to talk about the next one when he when he refers to integrity, because I know that's on our list as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that word has many different meanings, and yes. most, if not all, of those meanings apply to security all the same. Um, you know, integrity could mean you have integrity in your character as a security professional or, you know, to the point here, file integrity, that the files work, that they are what, what you backed up. And um, yeah, so integrity is absolutely an important thing. And then he talks about confidentiality in the same paragraph. But yeah, definitely need to talk about the integrity aspects. I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. So he mentions this about the, the security principles. So confidentiality, availability, and integrity. And for him, integrity is key. Um, so my take on what he means here by integrity, it's system integrity. It's making right. sure that the data you put there isn't changed at rest, for example. Um, because again, on the, the innovation side of the attacks, they may not encrypt your data, they may not steal your data, but they might change a few items in a data table somewhere. They might change a row or two in that database. 
Say, for example, instead of having a thousand dollars in their bank account, now they have a million, for example. And, right. and there are mechanisms to control this, obviously, but this was just a, a foolish example. But say, for example, an online retailer, maybe the, the controls there aren't as stringent. So instead of when you make your purchase and you have your order in place and you order, say, a new computer, um, and then an attacker goes in and changes the number ordered after you paid from one to 100, you're going to receive 100 computers. And that's a clever attack. And if successful, that's a very lucrative attack. So, and that's integrity. That's making sure that not only are your systems always available, not only is the data not stolen, but it doesn't get changed um, right. without your control, without your approval, for example. Um, businesses rely on this. This mm -hmm. goes beyond the, the IT security aspect. Businesses and business continuity relies on being able to claim they have integrity on their processes and their data. And yeah, I agree with him. It's very important. I don't know if it's the most important one, but making sure that your systems are not tempered with, it's also critical. It is very critical. Um, and there's different avenues here. And I'm going to bring up an avenue of this that I, I don't think is going to be the first thing that comes to mind for most people. So let's talk about config files in Linux. Okay, let's talk about a service that's running. I don't care what service it is. You have a service, there's something in the Etsy directory that has a config file for that service. If somebody breaks in and then they change that config file um, by some other means or vulnerability, and then they're able to restart the service, they're able to make a setting take effect that was you know previously disabled or maybe they adjust a setting uh, maybe they change your ssh port to another port that um, is open for example which would be very egregious uh, that's also why you should use key authentication another story um you know that that's another thing with integrity that your config files your your critical system files are not being changed but what a lot of people do, and this is a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. I think this is, is, isn't necessarily something administrators do on purpose, but it is what configuration management is. Um, if you have Puppet, Chef, Ansible, whatever it is, and let's just say that config file is managed by your configuration management utility. So hacker comes in, they change that file. They break into your system. Your configuration management solution during its next run goes through the system and notices that that file is out of spec. It's not the state that that file should be in. So it reverts that file back to what it's supposed to be, restarts the service. You discover that there's an intrusion, but then you look at the file, it's not changed. You might forget the fact that your config management solution changed it back. But, and that's a good thing in a way, because you want that. You don't want a an unauthorized change in your system. But at the same time, what I don't feel a lot of people will do is have that situation send them an alert. Sometimes people will think, well, it changed it back, so we're good. Nah, maybe, but what if somebody got in during that window? You really do need to have some kind of like notification system that tells you that a change was made to the file. So even if your config management solution undoes that change, you still have record that something did happen and what the change was. I think that's something that a lot of people might miss because they're just you know, so enthused about the fact that they could put an unauthorized change in their test system and see it change back. Look at that, it got changed right back to what it's supposed to be. That's great, but um, these config files are a very important part of integrity. And then also integrity, you could argue, is part of your backup solution. Are your files 
what did you the files that you upload to your backup solution is are they the same can you read those files can you load them can you actually spin up a new vm with the vm disk backup that you have up there um so there's a lot of different definitions of integrity but i often feel like there's just not enough focus on config files sometimes because that can really let a lot of people into your system absolutely and the thing you mentioned about backups that's actually an attack vector there um if you have regular backups of your systems and the backup system itself gets compromised and somebody tempers with the backups there, if they manage to trash one of your systems, they don't even have to get into the system. They just need to make it fail catastrophically. They need to make it crash so that when you look at it, okay, something's wrong with the system, I need to pull back the backup. Now you're going to pull back the tempered backup. And that's a, an attack vector right there. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's another one. And 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 your point, I'll make this one short. I mean, there are situations where the attack might be to not, you know, destroy your backups, but instead to understand what your life cycle is of your backups, how old they get before they get overwritten, like a tape backup, how long it can go before it starts over, or uh, maybe you only keep like six months of backups or something like that. And then the hackers in your system, they, they could totally infect your system right now, but they, they decide not to do that because they want to make sure that this, this demon they load into your machine doesn't actually do anything, doesn't activate until after six months because they found out that your backup retention is six months. And now all of your backups at that point have that uh, malware yeah. in the backup because they know what your retention is. That's another avenue as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, getting back to the integrity point, this is yep. especially important for specific industries, like say finance, uh, banks, for example, have to keep records for decades, both for their own interest and for their customer's sake. Um, education has to keep records of who graduated, when they graduated, their grades. Oh, wow, yeah. And in some places, the, the retention period for that might not even be defined. You just have to keep that forever. So that data is probably molding away on some tape library somewhere right. on some shell somewhere filled with uh, with tapes from 20 years ago that will probably yeah. never be read again. But right you to need to keep <laughs> <laughs> but you need to keep that data and you need to make sure that it isn't tempered with. And this is tricky when you're talking about these types of systems that are very old that uh, didn't consider these types of attacks because at the time they weren't the sync. Um, some of these backups might have been created at the time where there was no internet. And still the backups exist. You need to keep those records. You need to make them available on request. So they need to exist. Um, but uh, yeah, considering integrity is a, a core concern as well, it's pretty interesting as well. And it's a very relevant point that the guy makes here. It really is. And, and please look up, if you don't already know, uh, shelf life for backup media. <laughs> You absolutely need to understand that. I'm not even going to go into it um, because it's this, you know, rabbit hole yeah. that probably take us another 30 minutes. But I will ask our readers or listeners and, you know, anyone who's digesting this content, please look into it. You might think tapes are infinite. You might think CDs or, you know, optical media will last a long time. No, those won't last longer than 17 months, believe it or not. Look into it and you'll thank me for it because, and even hard drives lose magnetism over a while. So that's another yeah. point about integrity. Definitely look into that for sure. Yeah. And how you can do a media rotation on your backup data as well. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, this is actually one of the things that we deal with at Taxi. We have products that deal with 
prolonging the lifetime of Linux distributions, so getting updates for very old systems. Um, but the, the reasoning there is that some companies have very old systems in place just because they cannot update them, because there are no dr new drivers for that old backup equipment that they have. Uh, right. There's no replacement hardware in case that breaks, so they need to keep that one that is running exactly as it is and they can't touch it. Um, and that's a very real concern. Um, they can't lose access to the backups and they cannot update their systems because the new system, the new distributions just won't work with the old hardware. So yeah, that's one risk as well. And when it comes to legacy, to your point, it's, I, I feel like the majority, if not the vast majority of our listeners know that um, legacy is bad, but you know, for example, if your distribution is out of cycle, um, I, I'm sure a lot of people have been in a situation, we need to update this right now. Um, and, and maybe they mention this like six months before end of life, maybe even a year before end of life, because they already knew it was coming and then they just couldn't get any traction because of the cost. And then you run into a situation where, you know, you as the administrator, you really don't want there to be legacy software. It could have been avoided. You didn't get traction. But at the very least, you could, um, you know, it, it's cheaper in a lot of cases to have a solution like that that could keep that uh, OS or that distribution patched, because if you can at least get buy-in for that, um, that alone is such an amazing benefit too for a lot of people that can't seem to get enough traction because it is hard sometimes to um, get that new version of Red Hat approved or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, and there are just some situations where you're stuck. You have no avenue to update that will maintain your systems running. They'll just break yep. in different ways. Yep. And all the hardware was ex exceptionally susceptible to this um, because everything required new drivers and the old drivers were not compatible with the new generation of stuff that you're going to be migrating to. But yeah, this is a, a well tangent here. Um, yeah. There are two other points that I want to go into. The, mm -hmm. the interview has a bit more, but I want to cover the, the frameworks aspect. So he's asked about security frameworks. And I'd like to talk a bit about it because we haven't touched this in the podcast that I remember. So a security framework basically is a set of procedures, a set of processes that you put in place. Not necessarily all of them IT related, but they have to deal with things like uh, mandatory security training. They have to deal with things like access control, like frequency of patching, like and that's already IT related with the separation of privileges, list privilege for doing your activities, all of those things. And there are different frameworks to create that have been created that can be used as a, as a guiding hand for you when you have nothing in place and you want to implement something in an organization. And this is the case for many organizations out there. They don't have a standardized security plan in place, for example. And they're looking into how to apply that because things being what they are, people are realizing that cybersecurity is a concern, so they're trying to take steps into, into getting that in place. But when your organization is not large enough to have the critical mass behind it, where you can actually create all of this from scratch, following a framework that's in place already, it's actually a very interesting good place to start from. Um, it will give you the basics, it will give you at least an overview of what you're still not doing correctly. And those are the things that you need to address first. If your systems are only being patched, say, once every three months, if your um, policy is to give everybody a local admin on their workstations, if your policy is to 
don't concern yourself with vulnerabilities that are not critical, all of those things. The framework will explain to you why that's not the best way to go about it and will provide you guidance into how to improve it. Um, mm -hmm. This isn't the same thing as frameworks for threat modeling and all that. For example, MITRE has their attack framework that you can use on when your systems have been breached or something like that to get all of the details of the breach. It guides you into all the places that you need to look at, and the logs that you need to look and all of that. This is a more high level overview of that. This takes into consideration lots of different security related concerns. Um, for example, in the US, NIST has some some frameworks produce has some information around this that is publicly available that you can look up. And if you're trying to implement something like this in your organization, it's a good step. It's a, a good place to start from those those that are published by NIST. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think I've seen some of those uh, frameworks too myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many topics to cover and I am happy that we're covering this because these are things people need and we're going to absolutely continue to let everybody know. And yeah. yeah. The other thing that I would still like to cover on this interview is when he's asked about the, the supply chain risk, because he, he mentioned something that we haven't covered before, even though we've talked about cyber, uh, supply chain attacks repeatedly in the podcast. Um, but we've always done it through the lens of someone that was going to attack a library or was going to attack some third-party software that you're using. He goes at it and he talks about third-party data processors, for example. Mm -hmm. These are the type of companies that will work on the data that your company has and improve it or filter it or add to it or remove redundancy or something like that. And he goes at it to the lens that you need to look at their security practices. You need to make sure that when they are looking at your data, it's not being leaked somewhere, say leaky S3 bucket, for example. Um, you have to make sure that they're following the proper standards to dealing with that data, that uh, it doesn't get it doesn't get you in trouble with, um, say, for example, GDPR in Europe. Um, right. It's the type of thing that affects the supply chain because it's your vendor, it's someone that's dealing with your business, but it's not necessarily code. It's not necessarily software itself. It's the actual vendor agreement that you have with someone, it's your actual partner or something like that. And he considers this as well in the, the supply risk ma management. Absolutely. I mean, there's, um, it's a developing story, so I don't really want to cover it yet um, because I don't have enough detail. I know the um, you know general consensus where Apparently, GameStop is under some additional scrutiny. They're always under scrutiny, aren't they? But um, about allegedly recording customer data and sharing it with a third party without notice. And allegedly, that third party is profiting from the information, but there's no opt-in or anything like that. And then, hypothetically, what happens if that other company themselves gets breached? And then it, I mean, it already came back to GameStop, you know, already. It didn't even wait. But any other company probably would have had the third party get breached. And then they traced that to the company that, uh, you know, showed that data. And then all of a sudden that information gets leaked. That's a problem. You have to really understand all of your data, where it goes and who's who has a hold of it. What are the, their practices? And um, that's a big chain for sure. Absolutely. And yeah, this was basically all of the points that I wanted to cover on this interview. He makes um, other interesting points. I highly recommend you read the, the whole interview. Um, mm -hmm. He does mention that another risk is 
recruiting and keeping the, the talent that you get because it's very difficult to recruit uh, highly capable individuals at this moment and maintaining them in-house because they're always trying to be poached by other companies. So um, that's also a risk at the moment that he mentions. But again, you should really look at the whole interview. It's pretty interesting. At least I found it very interesting. Um, and yeah, it, I think it was a very good topic for the, the podcast today. I believe it helps you get some view, not only of what happens at the IT level, but how this translates higher up in the food chain. Um, and it's something that you really should consider because let's face it, you don't want to just be a cybersecurity analyst all the time or just a sysadmin all the time. Eventually you'll be looking higher up. So these are the things that you should start to be looking at. I think some of the things in this... Um article has actually um, gave me some ideas for additional topics for this podcast that I'll talk to you about, um, you know, offline, because I, I think there's going to be some, definitely some additional topics we'll be covering that this is causing. I love that so much because it, it just brings to light some of the things that um, I think people should know about. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, for me, this is all. So thank you everybody for joining and until the next one. Thank you very much. Bye.